Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that canvasses issues related to cars and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we have news stories including New Zealand proposes speed limit changes, safety testing looks at a range of people and technology, Renault and Geely to work together, and can we get superblocks in Melbourne? In our feature segment, we talk to Phil Latz, who is organising Australia's first micro-mobility conference and expo. Micro-mobility encompasses traditional bikes, electric bikes, cargo bikes, e-scooters and shared schemes, among other things. The great thing about the expo, which is being held at a large race course in Sydney with plenty of space and paths, is that you can have a go of these devices in a safe environment. It's free to the public if you register online. We also have a quick look at the Toyota Hilux Ute, which has more traditional features than some modern vehicles, yet it makes it easy to get used to. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. Let's start this program, which was originally broadcast on the 19th of November 2022, with the news. The New Zealand government say that they are taking a new approach to road safety. A new land transport rule came into effect in May 2022, requiring road controlling authorities to develop speed management plans with a whole-of-network approach every three years. Waka New Zealand's transport agency, which is tasked with promoting safe and functional land transport, including administering the state highway network, have just released an interim state highway speed management plan, 2023-24. to Significant reductions in speed limits are being proposed at locations across New Zealand. This interim plan focuses on high-risk locations and, they say, as well as those that have a higher level of public support. General areas of concern are schools where people interact with the state highway when children are arriving or leaving. They propose a permanent or variable speed limit from 30 kilometres an hour to 60 kilometres an hour, covering the school entrance and or related intersections for 300 metres. Then there's corridors, which include those under the Road to Zero program, General Highway Improvements and New Zealand Upgrade Projects and intersection speed zones, and finally, locations near Amarai, which is a communal or sacred place that serves religious and social purposes in Polynesian societies. Australasia's independent road testing and safety assessment organisation, ANCAP, together with its European counterpart, EuroNCAP, have released new additional factors that they will be measuring to rate the safety of cars. They aim to cover a wider variation of the size and fragility of people in cars and the impact of new technologies. These include tests to better cover gender equality and the ageing population, tests which more closely simulate real road environments, assessment of assisted and automated driving systems, and fire risk and thermal runaway in electric vehicles. The new test fits into the four phases of a potential crash event. These are safe driving, crash avoidance, crash protection and post-crash safety. This change will take effect from 2026 with ANCAP and EuroNCAP moving to a three-year protocol update cycle. 
ANCAP and Euro ANCAP will also look at expanding into the assessment of the safety capability of motorcycles and motor scooters and heavy goods vehicles. Reuters reports that Renault and China's Geely have announced plans for a jointly owned venture to produce petrol and hybrid powertrains. The venture will have 17 plants with annual production capacity of 5 million powertrains, five research and development centres on three continents and some 19,000 employees, the company said. They gave no financial terms but said each partner will own half of the venture. It will supply brands owned by or linked to Renault and Geely, including Nissan, Mitsubishi, Volvo Cars, Renault, Dacia, Geely Auto, Lincoln Co and Proton. They also said it might later supply third-party brands. Global automakers have been forming partnerships over the past decade to share the multi-billion dollar development costs of electric vehicles and more efficient gasoline engines. A workshop at RMIT has developed a step-by-step approach to introducing superblocks to Melbourne. The Hoddle Grid is an ordered layout of CBD streets in the traditional grid format, dividing the land space into rectangular areas. The approach from RMIT says that for much of the 20th century, the grid has been open to vehicles through traffic. More recent developments have given more emphasis to pedestrians, laneways and livability. Over 60% of street space in the grid is still given over to cars, although these account for less than 10% of all trips within the grid. As a result, it is still a significant site of injury. The Spanish city of Barcelona pioneered the superblock model with an innovative approach to managing traffic, freeing up public space and promoting walking and cycling, which has produced health and economic benefits. Outside the superblocks, the city's normal through traffic is accommodated on streets with a maximum speed of 50 kilometres an hour. Within the superblocks, cars are banned or restricted to 20 kilometres an hour. Priority is given to walking and cycling, and open space is reclaimed or created from parking. And that has been the news. When I was a young lad, the event to go to was the annual car show. We don't have such big, spectacular car shows now in Australia, and around the world they are under heavy competition from tech shows, which include some vehicle components. Well, we still do have a truck show, but at the other end of the spectrum, we are about to have what I am told is our first Expo and Conference event totally focusing on micro-mobility. Now, this encompasses traditional bikes, e-bikes, cargo bikes, e-scooters, shared schemes, all other forms of light electric vehicles, plus a wide range of enabling technologies, products and services. Now, the bloke behind this is Phil Letts, and he joins us on the line now. G'day, Phil. G'day, David. How are you going? I'm, I'm doing very well. I, I'll want to focus mainly on the hands-on opportunity uh, firstly, where and when is this event? This event is on Randwick Racecourse in Sydney and it is on Friday the 25th and Saturday the 26th of November. Now, there are two components to it, aren't there? There's the Expo, which the general public can go along, or anyone can go along to, as they can for the conference, but the conference is more a uh, bigger paid-for event. That's right. The expo provided you register in advance is free of charge to attend. If you just want to check out the weather and come on the day, it's $20. So the expo's 
either free or very inexpensive to come and attend. Well, that just allows you to organise things? Uh, um, yeah, just to uh, so there's no queue at the door and what have you. And um, also one of the key elements of the expo is test riding. So there is a waiver form as part of the registration process as well, just to make it a bit more efficient. And the text runs, that's interesting because a race course, and there have been places for some big event. Does it suit Micro Mobility Expo? Well, it does. And I hasten to add, it's not on the hallowed turf of the actual race course <laughs> itself. But uh, Randwick, which is the biggest and, if you like, wealthiest uh, race course in Sydney, certainly, and probably possibly in Australia, maybe Flemington might have something to say in Melbourne about that. But it's got large, spacious grounds and manicured gardens and a lot of nice pathways through those gardens. So it lends itself for test riding. And the other important factor is it's private land. It's owned by the turf club. So we can have test riding of e-skateboards, e-scooters, things that aren't, let's say, yet legal on public streets uh, with no problems and no, no traffic, no safety hassles if you like so it's perfect for that yeah that's that's a fantastic idea isn't it that there's the one thing you never got at a car show of course was the chance to actually experience it but it it, it is a way of also just breaking down the mystique about them well nothing educates you more than actually riding something if you actually jump on and ride the e-bike ride the e-scooter uh, there's a thing called the e-bike smile which nine out of ten first-time riders come back with a smile from ear to ear because they suddenly get it. Most of these uh, bikes' devices aren't throttle controlled. They're what you call pedelec. And so they're sensing the output that you're putting through your legs, how hard you're pressing on those pedals, about 100 times a second. And depending on what setting you're in, the amount of boost, they're boosting it proportionally and, and it's so smooth, it happens so quickly that it just feels like you've got bionic legs. But until you've actually ridden it and, and feel that sensation, it's really quite uncanny the first time you ever do it. There is that issue of adapting to it. I've had a go of an, an e-scooter, and mm -hmm. actually its acceleration, like any electric vehicle, is pretty strong. In fact, mm -hmm. I think some e-scooters will send you out with half-power uh, rating to start with that whole idea of adapting to it without having to uh, uh, you know it's not a huge thing it's just the unfamiliarity of a new product uh, Hertz are doing it and being aware of it now that they're renting out electric vehicles that that coming to grips with it leads to confidence absolutely and what better place to do it and yep. then a controlled private property where there's no traffic, no vehicle traffic whatsoever. So a good place to have a first ride. There's some lovely other practical aspects about them. I think one of the, at least one of them, the one that I could identify was the charging of them. Uh, what, what, what's, what's involved in that? Is it, it, it's not nearly as big as say charging a car. What sort of things do, would I need to do if I had say an electric bike? Well, all the bikes come with a charger. Like the market leader, for example, is Bosch. I've got a Bosch e-bike in the garage just next door. And 
the chargers use a very small current. Like you could run half a dozen chargers easily on a standard power board and not overload the power board. And it takes about two hours to do a full charge. The thing about an e-bike you've got to remember is the typical battery capacity is 100 times smaller than a typical car. So like a small, cheap electric car might be uh, 40 kilowatt hours, a large one might be 70, and an e-bike will be 0.4 for a smaller one, 0.7 for a larger one of a kilowatt hour. So it's 100 times smaller. And the reason it can be so much smaller is partly because the vehicle is lighter and smaller and easier to push. But secondly, because you do have the human input as well, perhaps 50% of the power, depending on what setting you're running, is human effort. So it really is a very small battery and very low power required to recharge. I had one car that had a 90 kilowatt hour battery and it took 50 hours to charge it, uh, uh, which of course is uh, uh, rather on a very old, old, you know, my single phase system at home. But is that a point? Can you get a supercharger for these things to do it quicker? Totally. Well, totally unnecessary, really, because yeah. um, I mean, I've got a, I'm talking about an eight or nine year old e bike here. Uh, I think, I think the newer ones charge faster. And, and yeah, really about two hours from go to woe uh, is, is all it takes. So, yeah, not much demand for that or need for that, I don't think, in the e-bike space. It's a lovely balance, really, when you say you can get some human input to it. Sydney, for example, has quite a number of crossings of the harbour, which means bridges up and over or hilly areas as well. To be able to, as one person once said, to be I want to be able to arrive with dignity and without sweating, This is a yeah. night, these sorts of devices are a good balance? Absolutely. That's the big game changer. It's not for cyclists. You don't have to be a cyclist. You're just somebody who wants to get there quicker or cheaper or you want to have a bit more fun or whatever it is. So you're just a person riding an e-bike. You're not a cyclist. And e-bikes have reached out and gathered an audience, a much wider audience who would never normally buy a bike or consider a bike. Like Exactly what you say, they might be too hilly where they live. They don't want to get sweaty in the summer perfectly good valid reasons why they wouldn't want to ride a bike but an e-bike overcomes that you, you said that there's a broadening market on this i can think mm. of it for local trips uh, what sort of range of uses do you think these might start to embrace well pretty much anything obviously commuting e-mountain bikes are, are really the hottest sector in australia where we're a more recreational oriented market so these can be really quite high performance very high performance mountain bikes for, for riding at stromlo in canberra or wherever threadbow any of the famous mountain bike parks and i have ridden one um, up to the top of mount stromlo unbelievable amounts of torque considering the motor was only 250 watt but you know tuned in a sporty way and, and just makes it so much easier so much more fun and for an old bloke like me um, who doesn't want to ride up a mountain anymore? Uh, it's 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 just great. It opens up that sport of recreational mountain biking to a whole range of people, or keeps them in it for longer. I noticed one of your uh, people that will have uh, on display talks about uh, promoting rail trails. That's a lovely mm. example, isn't it, of being able to go out 
and uh, cover a bit of territory without necessarily uh, having to exhaust yourself. Yeah, rail trails, especially in Victoria, is really the home of rail trails in Australia. New South Wales, until very recently, had legislation that every single rail trail, in order for it to be built, required its own Act of Parliament, which was incredibly difficult to, to achieve. They've just repealed that, and so uh, there's a few in New South Wales, but more under construction and more to come. Very, very popular for tourism, very popular with the local communities, some of which are quite um, economically backward, if you like, since since whenever the railway line closed. Will there be products there like bike racks and things? Absolutely. There'll be all the parts, accessories, as well as the complete bikes. And not just, you know, one sort of bike, like e-cargo bikes is a big sector now. And most of them are not actually for commercial cargo. They're for carrying the kids to school or preschool, that sort of thing, doing the shopping. So that'll be another big sector that's on display. It's not how we envisage they're going to be used. It's how people ultimately use them. Do you think we need to broaden our understanding that people will adapt and not just replace existing troops, but use them in ways that we might never have thought of? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can get a glimpse of the future. Obviously, some countries in Europe are way further ahead than Australia. But one thing that um, detailed studies do show, when people own an e-bike, they ride it more often and they ride it further on average than people who own a conventional non-e-bike. You think we'll get to the stage where we would need some public charging places away from the home? Yeah, quite possibly. But the other difference between e-bikes and e-cars is, as I say, because the charger is so small, it's not a lot bigger than the transformers you get for your laptop. Or It's a bit bigger, but not vastly bigger and quite easily carried in your bag or on the bike. So you can carry your own charger with you and plug it in at any, any household PowerPoint. So and, and get that charge, certainly a full charge in, say, two hours. So probably not quite the demand with the, you know, the, the higher, you know, fast charging and so on. It's probably not quite yeah. as badly needed. And the, another thing, of course, in your e-car, if the battery goes flat, that's it. You're sitting in a brick. If the e-bike battery goes flat, well, as long as you've still got two legs, uh, you can still ride it. You're just riding a slightly heavier bicycle. It's not only a case of the public who may buy the product, but also there is, of course, the policy and management uh, from government level. I notice that uh, the Transport for New South Wales will be there, but also our colleagues from Metro Count, who, who typically have had devices that put tubes across the road, which are good at detecting vehicles and categorising those vehicles, but have also developed one for bikes. It's it's part and parcel of the, the management of this is to understand how it's going to be used. And so it won't be just, say, just members of the public, but also those that may have a, an involvement in it from a policy directive. Absolutely. Well, especially in the conference, which is happening, happening simultaneously upstairs, we've got people from local and state government We've got people from engineering, infrastructure companies, and a whole a whole range of people will be involved. People coming from overseas, from software companies, and so on, world leading um, companies. But Metro Count have been making bike specific counters and have them installed 
all over Australia already and the world because it's an Australian success story. Metro Count uh, stationed or headquarters out in Perth, I think, in Western Australia. That's That's correct. Have been a great a, a success story, as you say, and I think we should be very proud of using and uh, adapting, or not adapting, but creating that sort of e- technology that the world recognises as well. The, the The conference could be a bunch of people with evangelical zeal. It's important that we don't just embrace it because the technology says we can do it, the experiences and the people you've got from talking from overseas, how important is it to be seeing of dealing with people where they're at rather than just what the technology might be fascinating to the engineer? Yeah, no, absolutely. Data is really important, finding out what is actually happening. So we've got four themes at the conference, two days, two themes a day. So the first day, making it, there and making it right so making it there is all about transport which includes bike and scooter share schemes and as i mentioned cargo bikes first mile last mile logistics etc making it right is all about infrastructure and how to design infrastructure well to accommodate all uh, uh, forms of transport users and then day two we've got making it happen and making it pay so making it happen is about behavior change that's more aimed at the public if you like and and making it pay is is business a wide range of business aspects and people from the commercial world speaking so really day one is it's more if you like your government and policy day and day two is more your government uh your public and business day but a lot of people are coming for both days Oh, indeed, and um, but people can just come and have a look and have a try of of certain devices, and I think that's one of its uh, great strengths for the public, as well as promoting and th- and thinking about and developing how we adapt, because adaptation is what's going to need would be needed in the future. Phil, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. You're welcome, David. Thanks for having me. And that's Phil Letts, who is uh, keen and been involved in promoting and using and riding, of course, uh, bicycles for many years, but who is now helping to promote the idea of this uh, micro-mobility. Micro is almost a misnomer in a way. It is mobility that's going to be used in many situations in both local and and urban areas, but also, I think, in regional towns as well. You're listening to Overdrive. A little while ago, we did a review of the Queen's Rolls-Royce that she used when she was in Australia. This week, I made a presentation to the Rolls-Royce Owners Club about transport planning and motoring journalism. I drew a parallel between how the Sir Henry Royce Foundation displays the Queen's car, where they allow people to sit in the back. And this compares with some research work we had done on a new approach to road safety. Adults often see road safety, especially to young people, as a stern lecture, adult to child, lecturer to student. The sort of approach of, I know the problem, I know the answer. Now just listen. But the real success comes when you engage with young people, get their ideas and their solutions that they own. We discussed this in the context of when people sit in the back of the Rolls Royce and how we might interact with them and not just tell them some facts. 
It was an interesting discussion, and we got some positive feedback, including a gentleman who was visiting from Canada. This is Overdrive across Australia. It's Electric Car Week here at Motoring Minute, and today we look at some of the innovations that come as a result of the EV evolution. First up is the NEO in China, some parts of Europe, and now the USA. This is a car without a battery. You buy a battery subscription just like a gas bottle and exchange it at a NEO centre when needed. It takes about four to five minutes, and you're on your way again. There's a large demand for classic restorations, but in EV mode. Amongst these are older Land Rovers, Ferraris, Maseratis, and the Cheeky Moke. Known as the Mini Moke in Australia, there is a big demand for restored Californian version in California, obviously, but also across Europe at places like Saint-Tropez, where it first became cool in the 60s. Obviously, there are a number of sports cars that are purely EV-based, like the Rimac Nevera, a million-dollar-plus hypercar that will go from 0 to 100 kilometers an hour in 1.85 seconds. Yes, you heard right. That's 1.85 seconds. And not to be left out, there are a number of specialist Australian EV conversion outlets that are riding the EV wave with excellent quality conversions. I'm Rob Fraser. This is Overdrive across Australia. The Toyota Hilux Ute is the top-selling car in Australia so far this year. Toyota sells more of these utes than the total sales of most manufacturers. They are versatile vehicles with strong powertrains and have removed many of the rough edges that were associated with four-wheel drive vehicles. But their dash and infotainment screens and general controls are not nearly as modern as some of the digital arrays that some vehicles, especially electric vehicles, have. Evan Jones, who has been around cars for many years, immediately noticed this when he first got into the car, and not in a bad way. I like the old world look, when I say old world, um, the early noughties feel about it, everything fell to hand, everything was quite familiar. Um, it's very car-like, but very no-nonsense. Um, I've got all the window buttons here, I've got all the usual things on the, on the steering wheel, easy to see. The screen is a smallish screen, but with nice, real buttons, which make it easier to thing. And no, uh, none of the, the things that I hate. So it's good. <laughs> <laughs> none of this lane keeping crap anywhere. So, so it, it can work, but can you turn it off? Is that is that? Did you do, turn the lane keeping off? I can't find it. it. It didn't turn on, and I can't find it anyway. Because it didn't turn on, I didn't really look for it. Um, I do have something here, but I think that's auto parking. That that, that button there, and there's your radar button, and down here's your um, cruise control. Cruise control. Uh, not- the actual cruise control stalk is down behind the steering wheel, not not your favourite location. No, and it's another one of those ones that doesn't light <coughs> up at night. So you have to know it's there, and you have to know which way to push it at night because you can't see it. So that's a small. Um, that's a criticism, but your button's here for your, uh, if you don't want to reach over to the radio, which, by the way, is less than a handspan away anyway. So you've got all your volume controls, you've got your phone, for your voice control here, your phone ring and hang up, um, and you've got your, your um, navigator here for um, for the dash panel, uh, as well as your uh, maps here. Now, um, overall, very easy to get used to. And that was Evan Jones with a few initial thoughts on the Toyota Hilux. 
You can get a two-wheel drive Hilux in very basic form before on-road costs from about $24,200. Right up to the top of the line dual cab SR5 at $55,700 plus on-road costs. You're listening to Overdrive. It's Electric Car Week here at Motoring Minute and today we look at the Ford Escape Fev. Ford released the Escape Fev in May this year and is the first electrified model in their range. The Escape is actually a quite comfortable small to mid-sized SUV that looks quite stylish and is quite pleasant inside. The front leather seats have electric adjustment and lumbar support for the driver. Smartphone connectivity, wireless charging, heads-up display and a host of other little luxuries that make daily driving better. Overall, the real-world distance of the EV mode is about 45 to 50 kilometers, and this is enough for my daily drive. But the hybrid petrol engine allows excellent economy without any range anxiety. Driving the Escape is easy. You can select from four different modes to select when and how to use the EV-only power. It's actually well-priced from $54,440 plus usual costs. I'm Brianna Fraser. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Phil Latz, Florence Fuller, Evan Jones, Rob Fraser and Paul Just for their help with the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. <laughs>